Well, good morning. If you have a Bible or a Bible app or however you read the Bible, I encourage you to turn to the book of Hosea, and we're going to be reading the first chapter, and uh, this morning I'm going to be using the NIV version, so if you're using your app, you can switch to the NIV. Um, So we're going to read Hosea chapter 1, starting in verse 2, and this is what it says. When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her. For like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. So he married Gomer, daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. Then the Lord said to Hosea, Call him Jezreel, because I will soon punish the house of Jehu for the massacre at Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of Israel. In that day, I will break Israel's bow in the valley of Jezreel. Gomer conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. Then the Lord said to Hosea, Call her Lo-Ruhamah, which means not loved, for I will no longer show love to Israel, that I should at all forgive them. Yet I will show love to Judah, and I will save them, not by bow, sword, or battle, or by horses and horsemen, but I, the Lord their God, will save them. After she had weaned Lo-Ruhamah, Gomer had another son. Then the Lord said, Call him Lo-Ami, which means not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Yet the Israelites will be like the sand on the seashore, which cannot be measured or counted. In the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called children of the living God. The people of Judah and the people of Israel will come together. They will appoint one leader and will come up out of the land, for great will be the day of Jezreel. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. So uh, several weeks ago, I was at Panera with my good friend, John Smith, and that's probably the most common name in the English language, but many of you might know John Smith because he's one of our elders. And as we were sitting there talking, I could see out of the corner of my eye, there was this guy sitting near us who kept watching us, and eventually he came over And he said, are you two related because you look a lot alike? (laughs) And I think John and I both were kind of stunned by this because if you know John, you know he's far better looking than I am. He knows he's far better looking than I am. So we didn't really know what to do with that. And we were both silent for a minute. And he said, well, I thought maybe you were father and son. And uh, we explained to him that we weren't. And I think John said something like, but we are brothers in Christ. And he was like, oh, that's cool. And so it kind of spurred this conversation on. And he told us that he had come from having some dental work done, which was funny for two reasons. For one thing, I thought, I can't imagine having dental work done and then being like, I'm going to head to Panera now. (laughs) Um, But also, his mouth was still numb and he was like drooling a lot when he was talking. And I don't think he knew that he was doing that, but he was a very nice guy and kind of like had this hippie new age conversation with us about Jesus until we told him that we were discussing a book about God. And when it turned to God, his tone changed and 
basically what I took from our brief interaction was that this man likes the idea of Jesus, but he doesn't like the idea of God, or at least the idea of God that he does like is something other than what he called the Old Testament God. He kept referring to the Old Testament God. And uh, I think it's a pretty common understanding of God that he's uh, the Old Testament God is vengeful and angry and, uh, and it's hard to believe in that God. And maybe you have a hard time reconciling the loving, kind Jesus with the Old Testament God who can seem full of wrath and anger. And so I, it's important to me not to just um, turn a blind eye to this and brush it under the rug, but to actually seek the scriptures. How do we reconcile these? And I think the most important thing that I would say to remember when you're grappling with these things is that if something is true of Jesus, it's true of God. I want to say that again. If something is true of Jesus, it's true of God. Because the good news of the gospel is not simply that a wise teacher named Jesus came to tell us some things about God. The good news of the gospel is that God himself took on human form in the person of Jesus Christ. So if we see in Jesus attributes that we like, like kindness and love and compassion and forgiveness... We have to remember that these attributes are true of God also. And so today we're going to look at Hosea, and it gives us a vivid picture of the heart and the emotions of God, even in the Old Testament. And I pray that you won't come away from this story feeling that there's some other grumpy, vengeful God in the Old Testament who is different from Jesus. I pray that we will see the heart of God shine through in this story. So we're in our third week of a sermon series called The Miners, which is a survey of the minor prophets. And if you're a guest with us this morning, or if you've missed the past couple weeks, I'm so glad that you're here. Um, And I want you to know that we started this series off by acknowledging that the minor prophets can be intimidating to read, because some of it's hard to understand. And so we hope as your pastors to shed some light on the minor prophets, because they all point to Jesus They all tell us something about the heart of God, and they all have something to do with us today. So uh, as we're looking at the minor prophets, we're looking at one each week. And uh, so each week, there's a trading card for that minor prophet that you can get at the welcome table out front to add to your collection of prophet trading cards. And for kids, we've also got some baseball-themed treats after church, and uh, kids, If you forgot to get your dad something today for Father's Day, you can pass along your Cracker Jacks to him, so we got your back. I was thinking uh, it smelled like bubble gum when I came in the lobby this morning, and I'm hoping by the end of summer, we're just going to be like cracking peanuts open and throwing the shells on the floor during (laughs) church, but we'll see if we make it there. So like I said, today we're learning about Hosea, so we're going to look at our timeline of the Minor Prophets Um, because it's helpful to help us place it uh, chronologically and geographically. And if this timeline is helpful for you, we've also got printed copies of this that you can take um, at the welcome table out front. But you can see Hosea is circled in yellow there, and you can see that it's in the northern kingdom. And the northern kingdom is usually just referred to as Israel. 
But Hosea also refers to the northern kingdom as Jacob or as Ephraim. And as a refresher, Israel took their name from Jacob, who was the grandson of Abraham. But God changed Jacob's name to Israel. So Jacob and Israel refer to the same person. So they're synonymous. Ephraim was one of the 12 tribes, which means was one of the sons of Israel. And Ephraim was the main tribe in the northern kingdom that led to that split between Judah and the rest of Israel, the northern and southern kingdom split. And so you can see uh, that Hosea was in the northern kingdom, and he's writing about 200 years after that schism that divided the nation into north and south. And you can also see on the timeline that Hosea was writing in the time before the northern kingdom had been conquered by Assyria and was forced into exile. But that's exactly what Hosea is warning Israel about. So the first verse of Hosea tells us that uh, there were kings of Judah and there were kings of Israel, and it names all the ones that served while he was prophesying. And this is helpful uh, because it helps us place it in time, it helps us date it, but it also tells us that he was a prophet for a pretty long span of time. So the book of Hosea is probably a summary of things that God spoke through him over the span of roughly 25 years. And it's written mostly in Hebrew poetry. If you actually look at the text in your Bible, you'll see it doesn't look like just a bunch of lines. They're broken up into sort of couplets. That means it's Hebrew poetry, except for the first chapter and the third chapter. And that's because those are narratives that are talking about Hosea. So uh, in our introduction to the prophets, we talked about two unifying themes of all the prophets. And they're broad. The two unifying themes are judgment and hope. And you're going to find that those themes of judgment and hope play out in Hosea, just as they do in the other prophets. In fact, if you look at the literary structure of Hosea, it consists of several sections of accusations and judgment, but always followed by a section of hope. And if you're familiar with Hosea at all, what you probably remember is that Hosea was married to a prostitute. And uh, God uses the actual life of Hosea and even the range of emotions that Hosea felt his anger, his heartache, his forgiveness, his love. He uses all these things as a symbol for God's relationship with Israel. But what most people don't realize, and I'll confess I didn't realize until I really started studying this book, is that this story of Hosea and his wife is only in the first three chapters, and Hosea is 14 chapters long. So the story of Hosea and his wife kind of serves as an overview of God's relationship with Israel. And then it hones in on different aspects of Israel's unfaithfulness and God's faithfulness for the remainder of the book. So this morning, we're mostly going to focus on just the first chapter, but we are going to look briefly at some of the other section of Hosea to see what it tells us about the character of God, to show how it points toward Jesus, and to see what it has to do with you and me. So we're going to start in verse 2. This is what it says. When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her, for like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. So he married Gomer, daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. 
So first of all, there's a lady named Gomer. And this strikes me as weird. I don't know if it strikes you as weird, but I grew up watching Andy Griffith. And so I just think of Gomer Pyle, right? But as I've been studying it, I thought, actually, it's more weird that at some point someone named a goofy gas station attendant after the promiscuous wife of an Old Testament prophet. (laughs) Nonetheless, her name is Gomer. And because of some of the nuances in the language of the Hebrew text, it's actually not clear whether Gomer was already promiscuous when they married or if this started happening after their marriage. But, uh, God often called prophets to do really bizarre things as symbolic acts. Like, for example, he called Ezekiel to lie on one side for 390 days and then lie on the other side for 40 days. Um, He called Isaiah to walk around naked for three years. Let that sink in. Uh, So it could be that God intentionally called Hosea to marry a woman who was already known as a prostitute, or maybe that didn't come about till after they were married. But regardless, God uses Hosea's marriage and Gomer's adultery to vividly show Israel's unfaithfulness and God's faithfulness. So let's keep reading in verse four. So we just heard that uh, uh, Gomer bore a son. And it says, Then the Lord said to Hosea, Call him Jezreel, because I will soon punish the house of Jehu for the massacre at Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of Israel. In that day I will break Israel's bow in the valley of Jezreel. And if you haven't picked up on it, names in the Old Testament are usually significant, and that's especially true in Hosea. It makes it explicit that these children's names are important. But I think it's also worth mentioning that Hosea means salvation. If you get your card today, it'll be on your card. Hosea is a shortened form of the word Yehoshua, which was often shortened to Yeshua. And then in Greek, it was turned into Jesus. And in English is turned into Jesus. So, is it significant that Hosea, who loved and redeemed his unfaithful wife, shares the same name as Jesus, which means salvation? I would say it's probably significant. But we know for sure that the name Jezreel is significant. In uh, Hebrew, it means something like God plants or God sows. And you'll notice I'm saying Jezreel. I realize most people would read it and say Jezreel, but I want you to see something. Uh, Israel, if you were to say it in uh, Hebrew, is Israel. Jezreel, as we would probably say it, in Hebrew is Israel. It sounds almost like Israel, and that was intentional. It means God plants or God sows, but literally, it means God scatters. So picture scattering seed. But in Hosea, it picks up the image of God scattering Israel as they would be scattered among the nations and exile. And on top of this, the name Jezreel would have reminded the people of a massacre that had happened in the valley of Jezreel. You all know that story, right? Um, 
unless you're a Bible history whiz, you're probably wondering who Jehu is and what the Valley of Jezreel is referring to. You may remember uh, the story of King Ahab and his wife Jezebel. Um, all you really need to know, no bueno, they were not good folks. But so Jehu took the throne from Ahab's son when he killed him, killed Jezebel, killed the 70 sons of Ahab, killed everyone in his house, and he did it all in the valley of Jezreel. So at the time, it looked like maybe Jehu was cleaning house and kind of going to like clean up the mess of King Ahab and Jezebel, but it wasn't long before it was apparent he was no better than King Ahab, and neither were his descendants. And in fact, at the time that Hosea is writing, one of Jehu's descendants is still on the throne, and he's one of the worst kings that Israel ever had. So when God says he'll punish the house of Jehu, God is saying that he's going to put an end to the reign of the current king. But he doesn't just say, I'm going to put a, an end to the dynasty of Jehu. What he says is, I'm going to put an end to the kingdom of Israel which is far more severe. So you might remember from your high school literature class, Romeo asked, what's in a name? And Hosea is saying, Romeo, a lot more than you think, buddy. So let's look at the other kids' names, starting in verse six. Gomer conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. And then the Lord said to Hosea, Call her Lo Ruhamah, which means not loved, for I will no longer show love to Israel, that I should at all forgive them. Yet I will show love to Judah, and I will save them, not by bow, sword, or battle, or by horses and horsemen, but I, the Lord their God, will save them. So here again, God calls Hosea to name this child something very symbolic, with a symbolic meaning. And as I was thinking about this, I have to wonder what the conversation between Hosea and Gomer was, because I know what baby naming conversations were like for Brandy and I, and I, I picture it being like, Gomer, I like Samantha, but I was thinking something like not loved. Um, I wonder how that conversation went down. Uh, but on a serious note, I want to point out to you that it says that Gomer conceived, but it does not explicitly state that Hosea was the father. And in chapter two, God says, I will not show my love to her children, not love, because they are the children of adultery. Now in chapter two, God is talking about the nation of Israel, but it insinuates that perhaps some of Gomer's children are illegitimate. But the most jarring thing about verse six is that the Lord says, I will no longer show love to Israel that I should at all forgive them. This is the whole story of God's people up to this point, God's love for Israel. And if this is where the story ended, it would be a dark and hopeless story. And it would lead us to have those doubts about the Old Testament God. But for now, we're going to leave it at a somewhat confusing cliffhanger, and we'll come back to it. But verse 7 is also somewhat confusing because God contrasts Israel with Judah and says he will save Judah. And Judah refers to the southern kingdom. Israel's the northern kingdom. Judah's the southern kingdom. 
But we already know, if you were here for the introduction, you already know he didn't save Judah because in 586, Judah was conquered and sent into exile. But at the point that Hosea was writing this, Judah was going to be safe for another 136 years after the northern kingdom fell. And it wouldn't ultimately be Assyria that they were conquered by. It was going to be Babylon. And in Isaiah chapter 37, and Isaiah is one of the major prophets, it actually records the account of Jerusalem, which was in Judah, being surrounded by the Assyrian army after they've already taken the other fortified cities. But Hezekiah, the king of Judah, prayed to the Lord. And I want you to listen to how the Lord responded. It says, and the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and returned home and lived at Nineveh. So what I want you to see is that what the Lord said through Hosea in verse 7 happened. The Lord saved Judah, not by bow, not by sword. The Lord himself saved them. And I want to highlight that because that can be confusing. I also want to highlight it because what God says will come to pass will come to pass. But let's keep reading in verse 8 about another child, about another significant name. It says, After she had weaned Lo Ruhamah, Gomer had another son. Then the Lord said, call him Lo-Ami, which means not my people, for you are not my people and I am not your God. So this is another child, a son that may or may not be Hosea's. And again, the name means not my people, which is poignant. The Lord says, for you are not my people and I am not your God. This is a devastating thing for anyone to hear. But it would have been especially devastating for this audience because it's an exact reversal of what the Lord said through the prophet Moses in Exodus 6. He said, I will take you to be my people. I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. So whatever it is that Israel has done to be unfaithful, it has grieved the heart of God so much that he is going to end his covenant with them. Or at least it would seem that way. But whenever there is judgment in the prophets, it's never without hope. And it comes abruptly and immediately here. In the very next verse, read with me. Verses 10 and 11. Yet the Israelites will be like the sand on the seashore, which cannot be measured or counted. In the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called children of the living God. The people of Judah and the people of Israel will come together. They will appoint one leader and will come up out of the land for great will be the day of Jezreel. So there will be judgment on Israel for their unfaithfulness, but there's also a future hope for their descendants. 
a hope that they will once again be children of God. And the Lord calls it the day of Jezreel. But he isn't talking about Hosea's son. Remember, Jezreel means literally God scatters. The day of Jezreel will no longer symbolize scattering, scattering seeds or scattering among the nations, because it says that day Israel and Judah, who have been divided for 200 years at this point, whatever this day is, they're again going to be united and they're going to share a king. Jezreel will again carry the connotation that God plants, God sows. There's, uh, there's sort of like agricultural imagery all over Hosea, this contrast of scattering with raising up. Whenever we read the passage of redemption, a lot of times we read of trees growing and things like that. So you have to wonder, what is God planting? When the prophet Isaiah talked about the coming Messiah, the anointed king in the line of David, who would save God's people, he said he would grow up like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. And in the New Testament, in Romans 15, the apostle Paul refers to this Messiah by quoting Isaiah. And he says, he is a root that will spring up, one who will arise to rule over the nations. And him, the Gentiles, which means not just Israel and Judah, but all nations, will hope. So if there's any hope for Israel, if there's any hope for the nations that they're going to be brought back into the presence of God, it's the hope of a coming Messiah, a coming king in the line of David. It's a hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. So... I want you to see that even in the first chapter of Hosea, there's a pattern of accusation and judgment, but then hope, and a hope specifically that points toward Jesus Christ himself. But it even points to a later day, a day of redemption that we still hope in. And I want to show you briefly how the rest of the story of Hosea and Gomer plays out. In chapter 2, You can turn there if you want to. It marks a transition from the Lord talking about Hosea and Gomer to the Lord talking about his own marriage to Israel. And if you have a Bible and you're looking at chapter two, you'll see that it switches to uh, poetry there. You'll see those couplets. However, the Lord keeps speaking of Israel as her. And so the lines get blurry sometimes as to whether we're talking about Israel or if we're talking about Hosea's wife, Gomer. And I'm convinced the stories are parallel and apply to both Gomer and Israel. But what is explicitly clear in chapter two and the rest of Hosea is that Israel has committed adultery. And this means that Israel has gone after the allure of two powerful nations, Egypt and Assyria. And I'm sure you remember Egypt is the very nation that Israel had been slaves to. So they're, they're going after the love of their former slave masters. And I also hope that it's not lost on you that Assyria is the nation that's eventually gonna conquer them and force them into exile. These are the lovers that Israel goes after. They seek the allure of their power, of their empire, and even their gods. So adultery is 
them going after other nations, but it's also going after other gods. Specifically, they were going after Canaanite gods, which are called Baals. That's how we usually say it. It's like Baal in Hebrew, but it literally means master. So usually Baal isn't referring to just one god. It's any one of this number of Canaanite gods that they referred to as their masters. But in short, they have broken their covenant with God. And at the same time, Gomer has broken her marriage covenant with Hosea. It probably started with extramarital affairs. And she started taking the stuff that Hosea had given her, like her food and her clothing and her oil and spices and her jewelry, and she started giving it to other men. And I imagine there were stretches of days when she didn't even come home. And so eventually, heartbroken, Hosea cut her off and stopped providing for her. And as it relates to Israel, the Lord talks about being heartbroken and cutting her her off also. The Lord gave his wife over to the thing that she thought she wanted. And it's not that the Lord was giving up on her but it's that she'll never know what she truly has until she goes after what seems to be the greener grass. So the Lord gave Israel over to her desire and Hosea gave Gomer over to her desire. And at that point, Gomer became a prostitute to provide for herself. But ultimately she couldn't afford her lifestyle and she got into too much debt with the wrong people And by the beginning of chapter three, we see that Gomer found herself enslaved to the people that she owed, the people that she thought she loved. But halfway through chapter two, even in the midst of this bleak situation, the Lord speaks of a day when Israel will be restored. And listen to what he says. In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me husband you will no longer call me my master. And remember, Baal means master. I will remove the names of the Baals from her lips. No longer will their names be invoked. The Lord is gonna remove those names. And then in verse 19, he says, I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice in love and compassion, I will betroth you in faithfulness and you will acknowledge the Lord. This isn't talking about some uh, change of heart per se. This is talking about God changing the hearts, giving a new heart to Israel so that they have hearts of love and compassion, of righteousness and justice. But, Despite this future hope, we find in chapter three that things are not good with Gomer because she's gone. She's no longer home and she's enslaved. And it changes again from poetry back to prose. And this time we read Hosea speaking in first person. And this is what it says. The Lord said to me, go show your love to your wife again, though she's loved by another man and is an adulteress, love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes. And that's talking about um, something that the Canaanites did in the worship of their Baals. 
And then this is Hosea, not the Lord. Hosea says, so I bought her, Gomer. I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and about a homer and a lethic of barley. So in love, Hosea redeemed his wife from slavery even when she was being unfaithful to him. And can you imagine what that must have cost him? Uh, You can do the whole thing where you look up how much silver this actually was and how much barley, but I'm not even talking about that. I'm talking about the emotional anguish to pay the price to release your wayward wife from slavery. And if you really let it sink in, it'll stir you up because all of us know what it is to be betrayed. And some of you knows, know what it feels like to deeply love someone, but to be hurt. You understand Hosea's conflicted feelings. It's like, I love them, but I don't know if I can trust them. I want to forgive them, but it opens me up to the potential of even more pain. And some of you know the shame of being unfaithful, whether that means infidelity or whether that means being disloyal to someone who trusts you. It stirs up shame that makes you believe it would be easier if if you had just not been forgiven. It would be easier if they were just mad at you and hated you because then you wouldn't feel so bad about yourself. In chapter 11 of Hosea, after the Lord has talked about the unfaithfulness of Israel and the depths of her idolatry, he switches images and he changes the symbolism from the relationship of a husband and a wife to the relationship of a father and a son. And he talks about how he's loved this son and raised this son, how he taught this son to walk, how he held him to his cheek, how he lavishly provided for him, but how this son turned on him and broke his heart. And I want you to listen to the emotional torment of this father. He says, how can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I treat you like Adma? How can I make you like Zeboim? Those were cities that were destroyed with Sodom and Gomorrah. This is the Lord speaking. He says, my heart is changed within me. All my compassion is aroused. I will not carry out my fierce anger, nor will I devastate Ephraim again. For I am God and not a man, the Holy One among you. I will not come against their cities. See, this is not a cold, heartless God. This is the Father that Jesus spoke of who ran to embrace and kiss his son, his son who believed he was no longer fit to be called a son. This isn't a cold, heartless God. This is the husband of Ephesians 5 who loved his wayward wife and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present her to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. 
This is the Holy One who in the very last chapter of Hosea says, I will heal their waywardness and love them freely for my anger has turned away from them. The Lord will heal wayward Israel. The Lord will heal the wayward heart of his wife. And this is our story. This is all of our story. Hosea isn't a a warning to an ancient people group about avoiding idolatry or even adultery. Hosea is a vivid perception of who we are and what we have already done. An unfaithful wife who chases after lovers who don't even care about her. But Hosea is also a vivid depiction of a God who loves. And it shows what he has already done. He is a redeemer who rescued us from slavery, from slavery to sin. And this is the day after Juneteenth when we rightfully remember the end of slavery in our own country. And we celebrate the freedoms that all people in this country have. It's especially appropriate to remember the good news of the freedom from slavery that we all have because of our Redeemer, Jesus Christ. It's not a cold, heartless God. He's a loving Father who embraces you and celebrates you and delights in you just because you're His, even when you've blown it. So whatever your relationship is or was, with your earthly father, you have a heavenly father who delights in you on Father's Day. And fathers, as we struggle to know how to both love and discipline our children, we have a perfect example of a good, good father in Hosea. Fathers, as we are hurt by our wives, whether unintentionally or intentionally, as we feel justified in hanging on to our resentment and our anger, we have a picture in Hosea of a husband who relentlessly loves and pursues his wife and forgives. It's our example. Not an angry, archaic God, but the God who sacrificed himself to set us free from the bondage of slavery to sin. This is not an angry Old Testament God. This is the God who you want to know. And because of Jesus Christ, you can know him. Let's pray. Holy God, you are our good, good father. And we thank you for the privilege of being your sons and daughters. We thank you that we are the bride of Christ. And as we read this story of Hosea and Gomer, as we see ourselves in it, may it lead us to repentance, but not to shame. May you remind us of how loved we are. May you remind us that you give us 
new hearts of righteousness and justice and love and compassion and faithfulness. And may we walk in that identity. Lord, if there is anyone in this room or anyone hearing these words who doesn't know you, Lord Jesus, may they come to know you. May they come to know the love of the Father. And we pray all this in the holy name of Jesus. Amen.